The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Happy Monday, everybody. You're watching Scorebox, and these are your Monday morning headlines. Data deal, the London Stock Exchange confirming it's in talks to buy data analytics platform Refinitiv in a deal worth $27 billion. Markets trade cautiously in Asia ahead of fresh talks between Washington and Beijing as investors eye a potential rate cut from the Fed later this week. Hong Kong clashes flare up as police fire tear gas at demonstrators with Beijing set to speak out after eight weeks of social unrest. And Iran hails constructive talks with European partners over the nuclear deal, but warns it will continue to reduce its commitments if the remaining parties fail to protect Tehran's interests. Very good to see you all this morning. Lots going on, of course, in the brewing space. AB InBev doing deals. In Asia, we spoke to Diageo's uh, Ivan Menezes, first on CNBC last week, about the uh, more spirits and wine end of the spectrum. And a lot of challenges going on globally as well. Safe to say Heineken, the world's second largest brewer, uh, has had a storming performance uh, over the year to date. The last three months alone, as you can see on the screen, up 7%. But the organic net revenue growth that you can see on the bottom of the screen looks a very impressive figure. So let me run you through a few more details. As you can see on the screen, uh, 5.6% higher on that first half revenue figure, though. Uh, But the first half net profit uh, down 1.2% organically. Uh, Talking about beer volumes up 3.1%. The outlook for the rest of the year, continued volatility in economic conditions. One would assume in many ways that beer was immune to it, but clearly not. Uh, Volatility in economic conditions. Now, margin, uh, despite those volume increases, under pressure as well. So mixed figures, I would suggest here as well. First half, um, operating profit, BEIA margin down 47 uh, basis points there as well. An average interest rate slightly below last year's. Uh, Last year was 3.2% as well. So a mixed set of numbers. Superior top line growth driven by volume, price and premiumization. We heard exactly that uh, from the CEO of Diageo last week about premiumization, i.e. it is the top brands where they can make more margin on that are seen to be the big drivers as well. So we will speak to the CEO, Jean-Francois van Boxmeer, 8.20 Central European time. So let's move on now uh, from the brewing space uh, to the airline industry as well. Uh, We are looking at numbers from Ryanair, and I'll just get those for you, uh, because the shares in Ryanair, as you can see, have had a tumultuous uh, time as of late. Lots of problems going on in the airline industry, not least the fact that you've got oscillating underlying costs in the form of staff 
and oil prices, which of course translates into aviation fuel, plus the fact there's overcapacity in Europe as ever, and the fact you've got concerns about the economic conditions as well. So let's just go through uh, some of the headlines we're getting from Ryanair today, starting with the fact that profit after tax, 243 million euros for the three months ending June. Uh, compared with expectations of 232. So that looks like uh, a slight beat, although it has to be said that's the company poll of analyst 232, the headline figure coming in at 243. But, but and I'm, I alluded to airline overcapacity, and you can see there how that's dented the shares over the last two years, 45% easier. They expect fares to be down around 6% in the first half of the year, down 6%. Uh, fair guidance towards the lower end of the guided minus two to plus one percent range. That's for the full year 20. So I'm afraid to say the outlook for the industry still looks as challenging as ever. I'll just reiterate the average fares were down six percent in the first quarter, but ancillary revenue per uh, passenger looks like it was up 14 percent. So extracting more from the extra revenues, uh, scratch cards and the like as well, but less from the actual fares as well. And this is the other point I was making. This is the key here, isn't it? First quarter costs up 19%. And again, fuel being the big, big, big factor here, 24% increase or an extra 150 million euros. The two weakest markets, well, what do you think they are? Yeah, of course, you're right. UK's in there as well due to Brexit concerns. And the other one, what have you got there? Yeah, Germany due to overcapacity. So the two weakest markets, according to Ryanair, Germany due to overcapacity, the UK due to Brexit concerns as well. The fuel bill, though, going forward in 2020, full year, uh, completely hit. No, not completely hedged, 90% hedged, I should say, at $709 per tonne. Let me see if I've got one more headline for you. I think it's quite fascinating, actually. It's a metaphor for what's going on elsewhere as well. Guidance remains heavily dependent uh, on close-in second-quarter fares, second-half prices, absence of security events, and no negative Brexit developments as well. So a whole host of geopolitical and economic factors uh, on the numbers there. Do you want a quick word on Bankia? Should we have a very quick look at Bankia as well? Because there's lots going on in the Spanish banking sector as well. And, of course, lots going on politically that we'll speak to Antonio Barroso or Kenio and later on as well, and the travails of the government, the PSOE as well, uh, closed an agreement with Lone Star Fund XI to transfer a portfolio of foreclosed real estate assets and non-performing mortgage loans. Um, deal to have a positive impact on the CET1 ratio. Okay, let's move on to what we saw on Friday. And my goodness me, I think these markets are absolutely fascinating at the moment for a whole combination of factors, not least the fact that the GDP data was quite convincing in the fact that it came in at 2.1%, but the consumer side of the figures on Friday, up 4.3%, looks incredibly robust. And yet, ladies and gentlemen, business fixed investment, what do you think that did as a subset of the figures we saw on Friday? It was down 0.6 of 1%. So let me just reiterate the point here and tie it in with some other figures. You've got strong consumer spending, but you've got weak fixed business investment. And yet at the same time as that weak business investment, and I make no apologies for tying two completely different stories together, the fact of the matter is buybacks still look blooming strong, don't they? Yeah? 
So you've got all these companies, not all of them, a large number of these companies spending vast amounts of money on the shareholders, on the buybacks, but on doing wick weak fixed investment. It wasn't supposed to be this case, ladies and gentlemen. Weren't we told that if there were fiscal incentives given to US corporations, they would go forth and spend on infrastructure. They would go forth and spend on CapEx. But that doesn't appear to be the case. So there's some slight problem here, isn't there? Again, open question. Don't have an answer. Uh, As far as this week is concerned, it is stunningly exciting. I mean that. If you care about what your interest rates are going forward, if you care about the earnings setup, if you care about the economics, and I know you care about all of them, you've got it all thrown in there. I mean, look at these moves from the tail end of last week. Huge, huge moves to the upside from communication services. Big, big moves uh, from App Alphabet, which, of course, uh, rallied 9.6% in session after those very strong late on figures on Thursday. And that was a third of the S&P gains. One stock. Alphabet, a third of the S&P gains. It was two thirds of the Nasdaq 100 gains as well. So Apple, uh, United Health was a very strong figure as well. Starbucks, uh, I mentioned Alphabet there as well. So some really big numbers to the upside. Now, as far as this week is concerned, I'm just going to pricey it very quickly because there is so much going on as well. You've got payroll on Friday. You've got income and spending figures out tomorrow. But of course, what you are all looking at tomorrow and on Wednesday is the two-day Federal Reserve meeting as well, where you're all expecting a little bit more Kool-Aid, aren't you? admit it. Yeah, you are. You're expecting 25 uh, points, uh, basis points, a rate cut. Uh, maybe some of you are going for 50, but you're certainly expecting another one to be signaled for September as well. Quick look at the Asian indices, which are underwhelmed this morning. I note the Hang Seng down 1.5%. Of course, a mix of domestic and broader factors weighing into that as well. The mainland Chinese market <coughs> down 0.14 of 1%. Only calls for European markets. Well, let's have a very quick look. Uh, we are called flat to slightly easier on the main European markets. And again, I've, put, I've given you so far data. I've given you earnings. I've given you geopolitics. Now, ladies and gentlemen, let me give you deals. And there are a lot of big deals in the offing. The London Stock Exchange has confirmed it's in talks to buy data analytics platform Refinitiv in a deal worth $27 billion dollars. It comes less than a year after Refinitiv was acquired by a private equity consortium. What a turnaround, eh, for Blackstone's-led consortium, which bought a majority stake in the firm from Thomson Reuters. At the time, Refinitiv was valued at $20 billion. That is no mean return, is it? Especially when you're scratching around with negative yields, a lot of you lot. Anyway, the LSE will pay for the entire transaction by issuing new shares with Refinitiv shareholders owning around 37% thereafter of the combined group. The LSE has embarked on a buying spree in recent years as it looks to expand and diversify its business. Russell Investments, FTSE International and the clearinghouse LCH amongst the recent acquisitions. Just just to show you why they're doing this, by the way, one of the main reasons is, of course, the volatility uh, of trading income. As we've seen from all the big banks in the first half of the year, the volatility of the trading income volatility of the IPO business as well. They're trying to offset that with streams of revenue, uh, which are more consistent, so to speak. And guess what? You guys don't buy your data or sell your data uh, on the basis uh, of what's going on in these short-term economic moves. You actually just buy it for long-term contracts. And that's the point, isn't it? Uh, It failed, though, of course, uh, in its bid, this is the London Stock Exchange, to buy rival Deutsche Börse in 2017.
Okay, moving on, another deal. Dutch food delivery firm, Takeaway.com, is in talks to buy the British rival Just Eat in a deal that would create a $9 billion group. Both companies confirmed the talks after media reports. Under takeover rules, Takeaway.com has until August 24th to say whether it will make a firm offer for Just Eat or indeed walk away. Uh, Pfizer, meanwhile, is close to a deal with generic drug maker Myland to combine its off-patent drug businesses, according to multiple reports. A CNBC source says a deal is expected to be announced today and would see Pfizer divest its Upjohn business and combine it with Mylan. According to our source at CNBC, Pfizer shareholders would own the majority of the business, whilst Mylan investors would hold slightly over 40% of the new entity. Do you want another deal? Of course you do. Uh, The US Justice Department has formally approved the $26 billion merger of Sprint and T-Mobile on Friday. Uh, This sent shares in both firms to new all-time highs. As part of the approval, Sprint will sell assets worth $5 billion to satellite television company Dish. Sprint and T-Mobile expect to close the deal in the second half of this year, but need to overcome a lawsuit from 13 states before completing the merger. Wow, so much going on, plus on the geopolitical front as well. Look at this, after the weekend of violence we've seen, uh, we're going to cross live to Hong Kong, and our very own Sherry Kang is waiting for us because it's extraordinary looking at these events in downtown Hong Kong as well. Political fallout from the territory's pro-democracy protests. We'll speak to Sherry after this break. CNBC's exclusive invitation-only retreat returns to Nanshao, Guangzhou, China in 2019. We explore all things tech from artificial intelligence to 5G. Join the world's most prolific investors, inventors and entrepreneurs as they share their stories and celebrate innovation. Visit EastTechWest.com for an application to attend. Welcome back. Police in Moscow have detained more than 1,000 people. I, th- I think I saw 1,400 last count uh, in one of Russia's largest political crackdowns in recent years. Thousands of anti-Kremlin protesters gathered on the streets of the Russian capital on Saturday, despite authorities declaring demonstrations illegal. Riot police responded by rounding up and beating protesters um, on Sunday. The uh, jailed opposition leader Alexei Navalny who had called for the protest, was rushed to hospital after suffering an allergic attack. Now, one doctor told Reuters that Navalny may have been poisoned. Uh, Hong Kong is reeling after another weekend of violent clashes between pro-democracy protesters and riot police. Authorities say they arrested at least 49 people on Sunday, many of whom had targeted China's representative office in the city. Beijing is due to give a statement on the latest unrest in the coming hours. Now, Sherry, you have been talking us through this whole story for the whole uh, eight weeks plus as well. Uh, And I'm really trying to read in here to work out just what's going on. So help me out here. Is there a difference between this being uh, anti-land protests, anti-China, anti-police action, anti-extradition bill, or or again, again, anti these gangs that appeared in the last week or so? Do we have to be very careful about the subtleties of who these people are protesting against? 
That's right. And there is a difference in that it what, what was inspired initially with this extradition bill has a sort of evolved into something bigger and perhaps more serious and dividing here in Hong Kong. So if it was just about the bill, then perhaps some of these protesters should really go home because the bill has been suspended by the Hong Kong government. But it's really the fear of the Hong Kong government not really being protective of its citizens. I think that's really what's driving these protests uh, in recent days, I should say, because one weekend ago, it was really about the scenes that we saw in Northern Territory of Yunlung with the white T-shirt wearing mob of people uh, beating up the protesters as well as passersby really no discrimination in terms of who they wanted to uh, violate an attack. And the fact that the police was not really there in the scene to protect the citizens, I think that the sense of Hong Kong police not wanting to protect the citizens, I think that's what's really at the core of, uh, you know, these protests over the few days. So really going into a wider movement of becoming anti-government and anti-authorities. And then, uh, of course, what we saw on Sunday is that some of these protesters once again wanted to make their way in this unauthorized march in Central District, a business district of Hong Kong, to the liaison office here in Hong Kong. So really, once again, wanting to make their uh, voices heard near the area of the Chinese representation of uh, here in Hong Kong. And I think that's really the story. The protesters really wanting to, uh, you know, criticize and and oppose the you know growing influence of mainland Chinese government. And you know, we're now reaching the point where the Hong Kong civil servants are also set to have their rally later on in this week as well. And you know, investors are uh, feeling the nervousness. Uh, really, there is that market reaction in the Hang Seng Index. And you know, what the mainland Chinese government says today in the press conference is very much important given that that has been sort of the overhang in Washington this development. Guys? Uh, excellent. Thank you very much indeed for that, Sherry. Uh, great reporting as ever, of course. Uh, Chinese profits, uh, industrial profits in China, dropped 3.1% in June from the year before. Now, that's according to the country's National Bureau of Statistics. The data adds to fears of a manufacturing slowdown driven by the ongoing trade dispute between Washington and Beijing. The Bureau said auto, oil processing and steel sectors have taken the brunt of the declines. U.S. and Chinese trade negotiators are set to meet in Shanghai on Tuesday. They will be the uh, these will be the first face to face talks since Presidents uh, Trump and Xi agreed to restart discussions at the G20 meeting in June. Officials are expected to hash out the details on goodwill gestures linked to Huawei and the American agricultural products. Uh, speaking to CNBC on Friday, White House economic advisor Larry Kudlow dampened expectations this time of a major breakthrough this week. I wouldn't expect any grand deal. I think uh, talking to our negotiators they're going to kind of reset the stage and hopefully go back to where the talks left off last May. Isn't that extraordinary? You've got the White House economic advisor there saying, if we're really lucky, if things go well, we're going to get back to where we started in May or where we finished in May. No more progress? I don't know. Uh, Mr. Cudlow was also asked if President Trump wants to weaken the dollar in response to what he says is currency manipulation by other countries. That's critical. Let's listen in. 
He tweeted last week that the dollar is the dominant currency in the world, and he wants it to stay that way. What the president, and I think this might be your misunderstanding, what the president is concerned about is that foreign countries may be manipulating their own currencies lower to try to gain some short-term temporary trade advantage. That we do not like, but it's not a question of bringing down the dollar. And I will say this, just in the past week, uh, we had a meeting with the president and the economic principles, and we have ruled out any currency intervention. So I just don't agree with your assertion. The uh, steady, reliable, dependable dollar is attracting money from all over the world. And that, along with our incentive policies on taxes and regulations and our hope for trade uh, barrier reduction, that's bringing money to the United States in bundles. We are the hottest economy in the world, and I expect us to stay that way. Valentin Marinoff is Managing Director, Head of G10FX Research at Credit Agriculture, joins us. So many things to discuss from what Mr. Cudlow Indeed. just said. Let's start off with the, the last statement from um, him. Very bullish one, too. We are the hottest economy in the world. Look, the US economy looks like it's doing all right. And yeah, yet, yeah. clearly, some people are worried because the Federal Reserve is, is expected to cut. But leaving the Federal Reserve out of this for now, we'll yeah, come back yeah, to, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. to Mr. Powell later on as well. How hot is the US economy and how worried should we be? Well, it is, looks much hotter than, say, the Eurozone or the UK at the moment, but it is certainly cooling down. Uh, it is coming from levels of growth that were certainly unprecedented. Uh, we got like five, five or more than five percent annualized growth uh, mid of last year. And we are cooling down from that. But in international comparison, it is indeed the case that uh, for a developed economy, the, U the U.S. is still offering pretty decent uh, growth rates, right? So is that appealing for the investors? I think uh, I disagree with the previous statements to the point that if you look at the flow data, what the Treasury is reporting on a monthly basis, so-called tick data, uh, for the last, I believe, maybe 14 months or so, actually foreigners were selling U.S. stocks. Excuse my ignorance, and I have a vast amount of it, yeah, so you have yeah. to excuse a lot. <laughs> uh, is tick data accurate? I thought it wasn't. Uh, no, no, it's the actual purchases of uh, U.S. assets by yeah. uh, foreigners. But in there's the a West. lot of gaps in tick data. Oh, yeah, it's, it's dated, let's call it this yeah. way. The fact being that uh, at the peak, at the height of uh, U.S. Uh, growth momentum, which was uh, really mid of last year and into the second quarter, that data was suggesting that foreigners were selling U.S. stocks, uh, they right. were selling bonds, they were actually buying T-bills. There's right? no wholesale uh, turn away from U.S. assets, but though, is the there? Especially I, when you consider what you said previously about the U.S. economy looking moderately hot compared to a lot of competitors. Why wouldn't investors still invest in this Oh, economy? no, no, it's the case. Uh, to qualify that statement is that we're coming uh, from a period of time which goes back, dates back to 2015 or even longer, where really foreign investors, Eurozone investors were really kind of piling uh, into the U.S. stock market, bond market. It is the case that where well, we are at the moment talking to clients as well, the U.S. looks still relatively okay, but it is already a bit overvalued. The dollar, U.S. stocks look a bit overvalued. It is the case that Treasury yields are no longer offering that yields that they used to, also when, especially when you adjust for hedging costs. So from that point of view, the markets are long the Hang dollar. Hang on, Valentin. They offer a yield. <laughs> <laughs> and, that, and that means a lot in this world. Is that right? The US 10-year yield there, 2.0685. The two-year, 1.8479. Yeah. I could show you trillions of dollars worth of sovereign around the world, especially yeah, in Europe and Japan, that give you no yield, give you negative yield as well. So 
The no, US they is get, very attractive they get on the yield the, comparison still, the, isn't the, it? The point I'm trying to make is that, yes, the dollar assets are still unrivaled in terms of yield, right, potentially okay, dividend yield, if you, but yes, indeed, the markets are already pretty long and uh, positioning there looks pretty stretched there. So I guess that's why all that makes for a relatively boring FX markets, whereby the markets are kind of a holding on to their dollar longs because they don't know where to go to if they want to dump those dollar longs. But at the same time, they don't feel very keen on adding to those longs because they already have already a bit much. There is an insinuation out there from those who want to get their currencies yeah. down that, um, and I'm not naming anyone, I'm not even pointing the finger at the US, but there is an insinuation that other countries aren't yeah. playing by the rules. Is anybody manipulating their currency down, i.e. using domestic measures to influence external factors, get their currencies down, which is not really in the, yeah, yeah, in yeah. the, um, the right way of doing things, it's not in the rules. Is anyone doing that? Well, not to my knowledge. If anything, uh, following an extensive study by the US Treasury, again, only the Vietnamese Dong uh, or indeed the Vietnamese officials were accused of actually doing what is, in essence... So uh, my point in, is not the Chinese? Uh, well, no, no, not uh, to my knowledge, not mm. to actually the Treasury's knowledge. There was no real conclusion to support uh, uh, any of those claims by the president, by uh, uh, really his staff. So from that point of view, I guess uh, what all that amounts to, really, for many investors, is actually verbal intervention in the dollar by mm. the Americans themselves, by accusing their trading partners of uh, really manipulation. They're essentially trying to talk down uh, their own currency. And I think that verbal, uh, if you wish, intervention may indeed... Uh, so verbal intervention stroke manipulation is allowed, physical isn't. Is that the way? Uh, well, I mean, if you ask Trump, I guess may be the case. But overall, let's say, I mean, uh, the world is somewhat different than it was, say, five or ten years ago. We have the G20 agreement communique, which really does not allow no. any active involvement, official involvement, unless, unless we do see spikes in volatility. Okay. And uh, we are far away from that. Volatility is very very, very low. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.